0: Well, this morning I'm going to talk about suffering with courage from 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. We've been in a series uh, in the book of 1 Peter, and, uh, and in this section of 1 Peter, he begins to talk about a, a Christian response uh, to suffering. Now, many of you probably have uh, know this guy, uh, General Mattis, uh, quite, uh, quite an amazing guy. He served our country for over 40 years with the U.S. Marine Corps. He saw action in many operations around the world. He was promoted to a four-star general in 2010, and then he retired. And he retired, was enjoying retirement when he was called to, be, uh, to interview for secretary of defense. And even though he hadn't uh, spent the seven years that are required, he was overwhelmingly and bipartisanly confirmed. And he was the secretary of defense for several years. So when he, when he was uh, in the Marines, he had two nicknames. One nickname was Mad Dog Mattis, which he did not like, and his other uh, nickname was Call Sign Chaos, and that is the name of his new book on leadership, Call Sign Chaos. I uh, snapped it up the day that it it uh, went on sale, and it is a very, very insightful book about leadership. Uh, one of the things that he said that he loved doing was getting with the privates and the corporals in the most dangerous conditions that they were in. So he would be, uh, he would dress up you know, in, his, in his, uh, his battle uniform and he would go out in some really dangerous places. Here he was, Colonel, at the time. And he would, he would go to the privates and the corporals just to see how they were doing. He said one time he came upon A group of guys, privates and corporals, and they were in a bad way. They were caked with dirt from being out in you know wherever they were for many months, and they they just looked tired, exhausted, hungry. They were they were just not in a great way. And General Mattis shows up, or Colonel Mattis shows up. He says, "How you guys doing?" And here's what they said, with a smile on their face: "We're living the dream, sir." We're living the dream. And he said, you know, that really challenged him because that was not the only time that Marines said that. He would repeatedly come upon soldiers who were suffering, many times suffering heroically. And he said, I, I could not believe the positive attitude they had, even when they were in pain, even when they were struggling with the hard times of their service to our our country. Seeing people, he said, who suffered with courage is what inspired him to stay in the Marines and keep offering that kind of leadership. Now, look, God's call on our life uh, reflects a similar value. We are called to suffer at times with courage. And it doesn't take just being in the Marines to do that. Many of you know this dear person, Frida Wilcox. Frida Wilcox has passed away recently. But after Frida retired, she had uh, she had uh, heart issues and she had quadruple bypass surgery. And I went down to Tulsa to visit Frida. And before I got into a room, the doctor told me, "We have not been able to manage her pain very well because of blood pressure issues." So I thought I'm going to be walking into. A hospital room with somebody who is in desperate pain, and that was not the case at all. Uh, I walked into her hospital room and she immediately smiled. Admittedly, it was through teeth gritting back pain. She smiled and she was on a vibrating bed because they're worried about blood clots. Very uncomfortable, vibrating bed. And for the next 15 minutes, it was as if Frida Wilcox was hosting me in her room. Now, Frida's a person who has discipled many of many women in this congregation. She was a winsome, positive, passionate follower of Jesus Christ. But she's somebody who who suffered with courage. And I will tell you that Frida used the M word with me many times because she had some she had some struggles health wise. And I would I would walk into her hospital room and she would say, Rod, God did a miracle did a miracle. I should have died, and I'm here, and I'm ready to serve Jesus. Now, this is a person who, who suffered with courage, and yet she had a robust belief in the supernatural and in a God who could, who could provide healing. So here's the deal. We live in a fallen world, and in this fallen world, stuff happens, like natural disasters take place. Sometimes people sin against us. Sometimes we sin and we have these really, really difficult consequences that we have to, we have to deal with. Sometimes we um, make mistakes and those mistakes cost us. In this fallen world there is distress, there is tribulation, there is tragedy and in those times we're forced with a choice. Am I going to turn my heart toward God or am I going to turn my heart away from God? I heard a, heard a, a debate last night between John Lennox, the apologist from England, and Christopher Hitchens, who is uh, the atheist who, who died uh, some time ago. And Hitchens' response to suffering was to turn away from God. And there are many believers who, who do that. They turn away from God in suffering. God's charge to us, His encouragement to us is to turn toward Him. And we see that and 1 first, first Peter 4, 1 through 6. So let's, let's start with a, a hard reality. And the hard truth is this, when tough times comes, come, we are called by God to suffer with courage. And here's what Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Wow, that's a Really interesting verse, but it starts off with the first part of verse, verse 1, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Now, Peter acknowledges that, that Jesus suffered. So let's think about his suffering for a moment. The disciples finish their meal in the upper room, and they descend the stairs into Jerusalem in the evening. They walk through the streets to the eastern gate. They exit the city. They walk across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of the Oil Press, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus leaves nine disciples at the gate, and Jesus and three disciples go in. He instructs the three disciples to stay, and then he goes further in to pray. And while Jesus is praying, you'll remember that Luke says he began to sweat great drops of blood, or another version says his sweat was like great drops of blood. He was in this intense pressure, knowing what was going on. To happen the day after and indeed for the next 18 hours Jesus uh, is going to suffer horribly he's whipped and flogged until his skin hangs off of his torso he has a crown of thorns shoved down around his head he's forced to march about half a mile to the place of his crucifixion and there's this 110 pound beam on his bloody raw back and he's he's walking in shock to the place of his crucifixion he has nails driven through his hands and his feet. On the cross, he endures the shame of nakedness and the incessant buzz of the insects that land on those, on those open sores. There was no worse way to die than crucifixion. So when Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he's referring to that event, the event that he had on the cross. But you know, um, it actually is, is worse than just the physical because there is. There is the spiritual, as God the Father is placing the sins of the world onto Jesus, and Jesus is enduring that guilt as if it were his own. Look, I can't hardly deal with the guilt that I feel, and I'm a single human being. I'm married. I'm just an individual human being. I, I, I can hardly deal with my own guilt. You know, but Jesus is dealing with, with the guilt of, what, 40, 50 billion people? Everybody who ever lived? 100 billion, I don't know how many people have lived, are living, and will live. But he's dealing with all of, all of their guilt as well. So his suffering is not just physical, it's also, it's also spiritual. And to make things even worse, God the Father seems to withdraw the sense of his presence to Jesus. So he is utterly alone. And as I often say, it's like he's the reject of heaven and earth. People below rejecting him. It's as if God the Father above is rejecting him. That's how he felt. And what is Jesus' attitude as he suffers, as suffering in the flesh? Back in the ancient world, there were people who would be crucified, and as long as they could get air into their lungs, they would utter, utter obscenities. They couldn't point to anybody. But they would utter obscenities from the cross. One final, in-your-face way of saying, I hate you for what you've done to me. Jesus does none of that. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, John, take care of my mom. Mom, John's your caretaker from here on out. He says things like, it's finished, meaning he knows that there is a victory coming. So here's the amazing picture of Jesus suffering. He suffers, but he suffers with somebody with noble integrity. And he made the choice to entrust himself to God in the midst of his suffering. And we, we have that same choice when we, when we suffer, when we go through hard, hard times. And the choice is, will I turn to God? Now, here's the interesting thing that I see about Jesus turning to God. Jesus turned to God when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. Now, by quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, Jesus is saying, this entire psalm applies to me. And guess what happens halfway through Psalm 22? There's a cry of victory. It's Like Jesus is saying, God, I'm in pain, but I know the victory is coming. So what does this have to do with us? Well, Peter says, arm yourselves with the same kind of, of attitude. So, um, <clears throat> so arm yourselves. The word arm yourself means to prepare something beforehand. How many of you have ever taken a backpacking trip and you've prepared beforehand? Like you've you got, you got your tent, you've got your sleeping bag, you've got your water bottle, you've got your stove, and then you have a first aid kit you've got things for blisters you may have some some advil for the aches and pains that come with hiking you have some rain gear now now is it is it being pessimistic and negative to have a first aid kit could, could somebody say why are you so negative backpacking with a first aid kit why are you so negative you like like can't you be positive and not carry a poncho rain gear why why are you so negative Are you not going to have a good time? Well, the reason why you pack all these things is because you're not packing in like fantasy land, you're packing in the backcountry. And things happen in the backcountry. You can twist your ankle. You can endure hypothermia. You can have the aches and pains of carrying a 50-pound backpack. And so you arm yourself just in case something like that happens. That's the word that Peter is using, arm yourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had. Same thing would take place if you go on a, go on a road trip. I told you my, my wife went on a road trip with her grandkids and part of the trip was Bartlesville to Yellowstone. Well, um, guess what they had in their car? Jumper cables, spare tire, and a car first aid kit. Isn't that ridiculously Negative, you're going on a vacation, why would you take something like that? Are you assuming something bad is gonna happen? No, <laughs> look, we, we, we live in a world where there are flat tires and kids get cuts and scrapes. I told you that my little granddaughter had an, had an ear infection and they, they, they had to go to a doctor in Yellowstone and, and there was a big elk in front, of the, in front of the urgent care center. They had to go around, around to the back, you know? Stuff happens in a fallen world. And so you arm yourself against those things that happen. So same thing is true, true in life. Um, suffering and hardship comes, and so we arm ourselves with this idea. If and when I suffer, I will commit to this one thing. I will turn to God in my suffering. Yes, I will express my pain. Jesus expressed his pain on the cross. But I'm also going to suffer turning toward God, knowing that God will be with me in my suffering and he may intervene and do something dramatic in answer to prayer. I I love what the Austrian psychologist Viktor Frankl said. He wrote the book uh, Search for Meaning. He says, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. And then he says, every day, every hour offered the opportunity in the concentration camp to make a decision, a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom. Your choice in that moment determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance or become molded into the form of the typical inmate or whether you would find whether you'd find freedom. So I don't know, you know where you are today. Maybe you're not suffering now. Life's really good for you, and you're just, you're just doing, you're doing great. Maybe you're suffering just a little bit. Maybe you're suffering terribly. Peter gives us this command. The command applies to all of us. Arm yourself with this attitude. If and when suffering comes, I will entrust myself to God so that I encounter His presence, and so that he can intervene within my situation. I know that doesn't sound pleasant, but there's a huge benefit to this. And here's the benefit. Benefit comes in the second part of verse 1 through verse 3. When we suffer with courage, we will accelerate our personal spiritual growth. Here's the verse. Whoever is suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Let me tell you what what he does not mean. He does not mean that when we suffer, we stop sinning. Uh, We um, are always going to deal with our sin nature from like now to the day you die. You have this nature that will spring up in you and you will do things that you wish you hadn't done. You will say things, think things, feel things that you wish weren't going on. You will deal with sin. Sin is a little bit like like an onion, the proverbial onion. You peel one part back and you think, I've got victory over this area, but there's another layer. You peel that one back, I got victory over this, uh, there's another layer. And you, peel, and you peel, and you peel, and you peel, and you will peel and peel and peel for the rest of your life, and you will still have issues of sin to deal with. He is not saying that, oh, if I suffer, I will never again sin. He's not saying that. In fact, you know, the more you grow, the more conscious you actually are of your sin, because your spiritual growth means you are seeing yourself in much more reality. So he's not saying, i uh, not going to sin anymore. What he is saying is that suffering with courage often motivates us to make a decisive break with the habits of the old life. So he says for the... Time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do: living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Now you look at those, those, that list. This is not like an arbitrary list. Like he just picks out a bunch of sins that He's picking out things that were very common in the parties and in the festivals of the ancient world. So people would go to these parties and, their, and festivals, and they would do these things. That what, what, that's what was trendy in the ancient world. It sounds sort of relevant to our world today, actually. But it was very trendy in the ancient world to do these kind of things. So imagine somebody who comes to Christ. They're beginning to change. They're suffering a little bit for their faith. And one of their old friends say, hey, come to this party. It's going to be Saturnalia or Anna Perenna. Come. It's going to be a great time. It's going to be an amazing party. You'll really enjoy this. This new Christian is torn because he's had some fun at some of these past parties, but now he's a follower of Jesus. And the lure is very strong. How is he going to break the habit of beginning to do things? So what Peter is saying is that when we encounter suffering, it does something to us. It begins to break some of those habits where we say, you know what? I'm done with that. I, I, I've found some meaning in the suffering that I've gone through. I'm done with that, those past habits. C.S. Lewis put it, put it this way. Lewis said, that pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of the rebel soul. You've heard me say that quote probably many times. Our souls are this fortress against God. We want to do what we want to do. And it's like <clears throat> like this this flag is just dropped down in that fortress of pain. And what we realize, wait a second, truth is truth is there's a God in heaven. Before whom I'm accountable. He's good, and this pain makes me realize that it's not all about me, not all about my my life and my wants and 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 I need to think differently, you know. So um, think about somebody who is a believer, goes through a terrible car accident. They're in the hospital, and I've heard things like this happen before, where they're in the hospital and. I will visit them, and they will say, man, God intervened in the most amazing way. You wouldn't believe it. Like the person who's driving behind me was an ER nurse. And so here I am in this mangled car, and it was an ER nurse who showed up within seconds. They had a first aid kit in their car. I go to the hospital, and, and the person there, you know, was, had this unique qualification. It was like everything came together for me. No, I... You know, so I suffer, and now what I want to do is I want to to live for God. I don't want to go back to the old habits because I've seen the power of God and the intervening grace of God. I want to be different now. So there's a Greek playwright named Aeschylus, and the Apostle Paul was well acquainted with the plays of Aeschylus. Aeschylus has this amazing statement in his play called Agamemnon, and here's, here's what he says. He who learns must suffer. Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until our own despair against our will comes wisdom through all the awful grace of God. And I didn't read that quite, quite well. Until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What this playwright is saying is something that Paul talks about all the time in his writings. And that is sometimes it is only in times of dark despair that our hearts are opened up to the power and the presence of God. And we say, you know what, I'm so over those things in my past life. I'm so over that. And so, and so then what, what um, Peter says is, is that we might begin to live for the will of God. Well, the will of God is used 17 times in the New Testament. And about five of those times, it means to live in an abiding, empowered relationship with God. So the idea is that I go through a time of, of suffering, and now I'm motivated to live in an abiding, empowered, passionate, first love relationship with God. And sometimes we do not get there until we go through Seasons of pain. What did Psalm 119 say? It says, It was good that I was afflicted so that I might follow after your word. I'm now motivated in a different different way. So now we saw a hard truth and a benefit. Hard truth and a benefit. Now we see another hard truth and we'll see another benefit. Here's another hard truth. Opposition to your faith is not abnormal but normal in a fallen world. So sometimes the suffering that you go through is suffering that happens because of persecution. So Peter goes on, he says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. What a phrase, huh? <laughs> flood of debauchery. You know, that, that's one of those phrases not many people use anymore. But, uh, but it's, it's a very picturesque idea. Debauchery, you know, out of control, Bad habits. Flood means a flood that's totally out of control. It's like a, like a double abundance of debauchery. And so what do they do? They, they malign you. They, they malign you. Well, the word that I, I want to emphasize is the word surprised. Because the word surprised <clears throat> means to be negatively surprised by a thing that's odd or weird. A thing that is bizarre or disgusting. One day, many years ago, my boys and I were driving to a campout on a dirt road and we're driving pretty slow uh, in in our van because it was a dirt road. We're driving pretty slow and we see this movement on the road up ahead. I slow down, I think, what is that? Like, what is that? I don't know what it is, but it looks really disgusting. If I have my memory right, I'm looking, I'm driving closer, and it was a cluster of tarantulas. Now I just I don't like spiders or snakes. And this was a cluster of big hairy creepy crawly tarantulas. Got a cluster of them coming across the road. And um, I did this involuntary shiver, like, ugh, like this, ugh, like this. That's the word surprised. Negatively surprised by something that was weird or odd. And they're going to be people who think that exact same way about your faith in Christ. They don't understand it. It seems crazy to them. And therefore, they have this gut reaction, and their faces contort. and They say, seriously, you're, you're a Christian? Ugh. Ugh. I don't want anything to do with that that's ugh. Christianity ugh. not good so you can you can imagine that they begin, then would begin to get angry and then what happened in the ancient world was, was that somebody would come to Christ and there were all these negative stereotypes in the ancient world like, like what is communion in communion they draw blood and they drink each other's blood that was a stereotype of course it was not true but it was a stereotype and so those stereo- people would react against that stereotype in the ancient world. But that stereotype is still here today. Uh, just, it's just updated a little bit. People have these crazy stereotypes about the Christian faith. Every once in a while, you know, I read books by people who are rejecting the Christian faith. And when I hear about why they're rejecting it, I think that it's crazy that they would think that that's what Christians believe or what the Bible says. It's crazy, but it's a stereotype that they seize on and they, and, they, and they embrace. And so people, from time to time, may end up maligning you. And to complicate matters, we live in this deeply polarized society where you, know, you can say you believe something and this whole mass of stereotypes get applied to you whether that's true or not. And so it's possible to be maligned for your faith. So that's a hard truth. It's a hard truth. So think about this for for a second. To be surprised means to be negatively startled by the introduction of something new and strange. And it's possible that if somebody finds out about your Christian faith, that may be exactly what they feel about you. That's a hard truth. Now comes the benefit after that hard truth. The benefit is some of the people who are angry with you are going to come to Christ. Some are gonna come to Christ. So here's what Peter says. Um, But remember that they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. That's why the good news was preached to those who are now dead, so that although they were destined to die like all people, they will now live forever with God in, in the spirit. The people who are now dead are people who are spiritually separated from God. It's not talking about people who are physically dead. They're spiritually separated from God, and in that sense, they're dead, but therein lies our opportunity, because they might be irritated um, at us. We might be irritated at them uh, for rejecting us. We might be hurt because they've maligned us, but they need us. They need us because they face a tragic destiny, and they need our integrity, our perseverance, our compassion and our prayers. And so if we, if we viewed the people who are maligning us from the vantage point of eternity, we would have great compassion. And so we need to view them from the vantage point of eternity. So that's why Peter says, that's why the, that's why the good news was preached. So you know what the good news is. The good news is is a message about the past. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He secured eternal forgiveness and eternal life for all who believe. That's, that's incredibly good news. The good news is good news about the future because the good news is the good news that Jesus Christ is coming back. He who died on the cross is returning. And the good news is the good news about the present because we enter into that eternal life right now. So the people who are maligning you need to see that there's something deep and substantive about your life so that they'll be drawn toward the Christ whom you represent. I mean, I I read all sorts of biographies, and it's interesting the number of times that somebody who came to Christ came to Christ because the person they were persecuting showed integrity rather than cussing them out. Or having nothing to do with them, the person they were persecuting showed them integrity and they thought, okay, there's something really different about this person and I need to pay attention. So, this happened to, this happened to Jesus with a, with a thief on the cross. You know, Jesus on the cross, two thieves, one on either side, both yelling at him, both maligning him. One has a change of heart. One who has a cha- change of heart uh, says, Lord, um, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Why did he have a change of heart? Because Jesus showed integrity when he was being persecuted. Think about the centurion. Centurion at the foot of the cross had seen thousands and thousands of crucifixions. He had never seen anybody die the way Jesus died. Never. And he says at the end, wow, now that guy, that guy was truly the son of God. Same is still true today. Uh, I've told you the story about this guy here, Uh, Casey Diaz, wrote a book called The Shot Collar. He was a gang member, brutal, vicious, murdering gang member, comes to Christ, comes to Christ in solitary confinement. He's put back in the general population after he comes to Christ, and boy, is he persecuted for his faith. And the people that he led to Christ said, it's because of your integrity that I came to Christ. After slamming you and beating you up, I came to Christ because of your integrity. He's now a pastor in South Central Los Angeles doing some amazing things. So let's try to put the, put the threads together on this. Here's Peter's argument. Suffering happens. We're, we're living in a fallen world. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a fallen world and just bad things happen. Other times we suffer because people think our faith is foolish. Since suffering is part of life in a fallen world, we've got to arm ourselves with an attitude of courage. So here's, here's the idea that he wants to get across. The idea is this, no matter what hardship or suffering comes my way in life, I will always choose to turn to God in the midst of my pain. I'll first seek his presence and I will seek his power, his solution. That may mean healing prayer. That may mean, God, I'm, 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 I'm asking for a miracle here, but we're always turning to him. In doing so, I'm going to seek his solution to, to, uh, and his strength that I'm going to love my enemies in the process. I'm going to love my enemies. So with that in, in mind, let's look at, let, look at several takeaways. How do we suffer with courage today? Well, the first way is this. Please create a category in your thought life for more courage. Create a category in your thought life for more courage. This would be courage in two categories. Courage, first of all, to endure personal suffering. Encourage uh, to suffer for Jesus if it means suffering for your faith. You know, sometimes there's just suffering of a fallen world, and sometimes there's suffering because you, you're a Christian. I found out this morning that um, one of our ministry partners in Cuba was arrested either yesterday or the day before for preaching the gospel. Um, I, I, don't, I don't go through that, but in Cuba you do. And so, you know, that person has had courage to be able to be able to to do that. I would say as well that courage means that I will always seek God's supernatural solution. Because sometimes people will will suffer and they will they will go, well, I just gotta suffer and just gotta grin and bear it here. And so I just gonna have to suffer with courage and no, don't stop there. What you want to do is you want to seek God's supernatural solution. You want to seek his miraculous intervention. Yes, and by doing that, what you're doing is you're, is you're, is you're saying, God, you, you are the God of the universe. You, you, you taught me to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, God. I pray that your kingdom power would break through in this situation. It takes courage to pray for that. And so I, I encourage you, when you go through a time of suffering, you know, seek courage. And part of that courage is to pray for a supernatural solution. Here's a second, a second takeaway. Um, build some disciplines in your life that will sustain courage. Maybe that means you memorize some of the relevant verses about God's power and suffering. Maybe that means you keep a journal. So, you know, some of the darkest moments of my, of my life, my journal was my lifeline. And there were times where I would take my journal literally with me everywhere. I sort of do that now. But, but my journal was my lifeline in some of those darker moments. And because I was pouring out my heart to God on paper, I, I had a, a raw place where I could process pain, but I also had a place where I could, I could record God's interventions. Look, Psalm 22 is all about pouring out pain and God's intervention. All the psalmists do that. They express their pain honestly toward God but they also anticipate God's miraculous intervention. And then the third takeaway is to actively pray for your enemies. Uh, Last week I said, will you please visualize the resurrected Jesus above the person who's giving you a hard time? Apparently that resonated with a lot of people because you told me, I've been thinking about that all week. So I I continue to to encourage you you, uh, to to do that. And the the final one is to actively pray for your enemies. Uh, Pray for them. Now, now let, me, let me introduce you to somebody, and I don't know if he's here or not. He told me he might be here. Uh, I don't think he is, but his name is Rick Taylor. I met Rick Taylor many, many years ago because I had cut some trees, uh, some branches down in my yard, and I had no idea how to remove those trees. And Rick comes around, and, and Rick says, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll remove them for you. The price was right, and a relationship formed. Whenever I did any yard work, I needed stuff hauled away, I'd call Rick. Rick. Uh, One Christmas day, Rick calls and says, you got any work for me to do? I said, Rick, it's Christmas. You need some help. Can I help you? He said, yeah. I said, "Okay. I'm going to help you. Well, Rick had some health issues, and Rick um, lost his leg to diabetes. And Rick called me uh, after his leg was amputated, and he said, said, do you have any work that I can do? I said, Rick, can you do work? He said, yeah, I can take my walker over to your your flower bed and weed it. I said, okay. I said, come on over. Well, it was 98 degrees out that day he came over. And I'm looking at Rick, and I'm thinking, hey, if that guy is suffering with courage, I'm going to as well. I put my work clothes on, and I worked until I was, like, exhausted. And at that time, he was just, he was looking at me, you know, and we were talking. That's a guy who suffers with courage. And, you know, he has taught me a lot about that. And um, he may be here second service. I'm just telling you, God loves it when we began to do this. Peter says, arm yourselves with that same attitude because he who suffers is going to have victory over sin. And he may see a miracle in the process. Let's stand for closing prayer.